For December 24th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 547. In Cherry Tree Lane, the cherry blossoms grow. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, we're like uh, a, a team, a buddy act of two lawyers, excuse me, solicitors, who, uh, who with their slapstick Keystone Cops-esque hijinks, um, you know, serve to uh, foil the, the plot of the villain unwillingly, though, though we work for him. I'm uh, Matt Rather, and I am also uh, joined by the good member of our duo, Mr. Peter Fetzel. Hello, Matt. <laughs> Hello, Pete. I, I had a... to say that we, we do this thing at the beginning so that you can hear what our voices sound like, so that you know how to tell us apart as a listener. But I really wanted to be like, Hello, Governor. <laughs> like, Hello. Hello. It's Mary. It's a lovely, jolly holiday. That's oh, it is. Right. Well, if we keep talking like this, Pete, we'll get in some serious Barney. <laughs> well we've got to finish the first and last <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah it is um that actually there, there were a lot of sort of good englishisms in this like uh people talking as they actually talk uh in in english english but th- they called them lawyers and not solicitors which was right. which i think was have was we name checked what we're actually talking no, about uh, and it's it's probably like the fourth or fifth most popular movie uh <laughs> that was released this weekend so um you know we probably have to let's see oh no number two all right it was duking it out with bumblebee for the number two slot uh after aquaman aquaman cleaned up um <laughs> because water nothing nothing cleans up like water uh the uh and number two uh movie in america this weekend was Mary Poppins returns. She, the the uh, stern yet understanding governess, dealt the uh, classic car transformer a little bop in his bumblebee nose, and uh, he sat down and returned to uh, I don't know, returned to his bath or something like that. Yes, Mary Poppins returns, which we thought would be. I mean, you'd you'd peg Aquaman as being the overthinking it podcast. Uh, movie, wouldn't you? But that's why we didn't want to do it. We thought there might be more to talk about uh, with Mary Poppins Returns. So, spoilers for Mary Poppins Returns, and it doesn't matter. Uh, that that I mean, she Poppins is. I mean, really, the spoiler is that this film has no plot. Right, right. Yes. That there's no there. There are stakes, but there's no conflict. Right, we, we, yeah. for reasons that we'll we'll discuss later. But first, this is your last chance uh, before the holidays to hop onto the Overthinking It gift guide and just overnight yourself something, or uh, do what I very often have done in my life and like hit up the sales uh, after the holidays uh, to buy yourself stuff. Um, and uh, when you do, check out the Overthinking It gift guide to see if there's anything there that you want to buy on sale. Uh, our annual roundup of, of uh, presents for the, the smart, funny friend in your life. Top on that list is a membership in Overthinking It. Uh, we are supported by our members who, uh, give a, uh, who give a subscription of five bucks a month to uh, help the site, support the site, keep us going, uh, put, a little, uh, put a little cheddar in our 
pockets. And that's, uh, and that's something that, that we really appreciate. Now, there was a big complicated membership program, uh, when we launched it a couple of years ago that proved difficult to maintain or even understand. And, uh, we now do five bucks a month for, uh, for some extra podcasts, including the almost weekly question of the week podcast, which Pete and I just recorded before, before starting this one. So, uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can also go to overthinkingit.com slash join. Thank you to the members who support us. Uh, we are grateful every time we do this for your continued patronage. All right. Let's jump in. Pete, what is the plot of Mary Poppins <laughs> Returns? So there's a lot of ways of articulating this. <laughs> 13 ways of looking at a, at a Poppins. So Mary Poppins Returns is a movie about a bank teller who becomes several months arrears in his mortgage due to personal hardship. But because the movie takes place in the 1930s, prior to modern regulations on mortgage repayment and foreclosure, the loan becomes callable, and the bank tailor has to pay off the entire loan in a short time frame rather than uh, in installments. And he has the resources to do this, but Mary Poppins Returns is a movie about how uh, he first attempts to recruit a powerful warlock to lead some sort of heist or something, I hope, but in fact later realizes that he merely has to transfer money out of his brokerage account, and then he's all good. So this is a movie about a, a big old false alarm. I, I, I felt like... It's movie... it's worse than that. It's like a it's like a uh, I don't know. It's like a um, windfall ex machina, right? Yep. Because like in at the very end of the the third act of the movie, he discovers that he has had an investment account that he didn't know about all along, yes. and that the Tuppence invested in the first Mary Poppins movie has uh, has appreciated considerably since his uh, you know since his initial deposit and. Um, that you know dick van dyke now uh dick van dyke you know he paid it to dick van dyke initially <laughs> and and uh dick dick van dyke is going the dick to van dyke taketh and the dick van dyke <laughs> giveth away yeah that's, yeah that's exactly what happens in this movie so there was never anything there was here's the thing this is why it's plotless nothing had to change Right. Like a truth that was always true had to be revealed. But the revelation of that truth was not. I mean, I, you know, arguably Dick Van Dyke is more the protagonist of this movie than Mr. Banks or Mary Poppins or well, the, whatever Lin-Manuel Miranda is. So, well, so that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, so so this is a movie. Another way of looking at the movie is that this is a movie that's sort of like the Magnificent Seven or the Seven Samurai. This is a samurai movie, as is evidenced by the fact that there are cherry blossoms that are beginning to bloom at the beginning of the movie <laughs> yes and then at the end of the movie there is a wind that rushes through and all the cherry blossoms come off the trees in kind of a giant swirling uh glorious falling of the cherry blossoms and matt you and i both appreciate symbolism right oh so yeah you know oh i'm so down i'm so what down with do some symbolism. blowing cherry blossoms always mean the, uh with death right dead samurai that's yeah. what it means <laughs> blowing cherry blossoms are about the death of beauty and youth and strength in its full flower it is the death of the samurai the cherry blossom is like great is a is sort of 
sacred to the samurai, right? Um, and, after cher- and, and cherry blossoms are are like important, are like a very useful literary symbol uh, because they are extraordinarily beautiful and they die, they blow off really, really quickly. So, like, yeah. you really, if you want to see the cherry blossoms bloom, you got to get there like the day of. There's yeah, not, yeah. there's not a lot of cushion on on either side. So, like, uh, book your ticket to Kyoto, but stay for the whole month is what I'm saying. (laughs) So this is a movie about how everybody who used to be in the old Mary Poppins movie is either old or dead. And uh, which is, I mean, like kind of, I mean, I say it, I don't mean to be inconsiderate, but like the movie is, is sort of about, well, so the movie is about a bank teller (laughs) who has a, a somewhat complicated financial situation that requires several days to sort out. That is, that is the like surface level plot. Right. But it is also about a bank teller whose wife has died recently, who, uh, for some reason lives in the Mary Poppins universe and explores the death of his wife by meeting various characters from a movie from the 1960s. Right. Like that's sort of like, what ha- is that? Is that when Mary Poppins was made or is it the fifties? When was Mary Poppins made the first one? Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's interesting. The, in the 64, 64. Okay. There you go. Yeah. 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 And so like, so he meets this sort of like, Oh, Mary Poppins hasn't gotten older, but she's sure not Julie Andrews. And there's like a really self-conscious way, I think in which Emily Bl- uh, Blunt's Mary Poppins, is not Julie Andrews. And then, like, Dick Van Dyke is there, but it's super old Dick Van Dyke, right? And then it's, like, uh, Angela Lansbury is there at the very, very end. And it's this sort of, like, really intense feeling of, like, these people are, like, 90, right? Yeah. Like, they are they are barely holding on and uh and and this and mary poppins while the cherry blossoms blow like drifts up into the sky right and the and the sort of the 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 idea of like the dark sky of london is the sky of the living and the blue sky of the end of mary poppins is like the sky into which the the dead depart or what the song says what is like where lost things go right is that what they say like the song is like where do lost things go and the answer is to they used to be to blockbuster or to video stores right it's like oh you can go watch Mary Poppins at the video store, but now video stores are gone. So where do the video stores go? Uh, but yeah, but it's it's basically about like how uh, you know when, one of the stories is this is about Mary Poppins coming and Mary Poppins going uh, because Mary Poppins has to go because all things pass into myth and legend. I guess I don't know what what do you think this movie is about? I, uh, I want to compare and contrast Mary Poppins with an an American icon of childcare in the absence of a mother, uh, and okay. that is the Cat in the Hat. Oh, I was thinking of a third for the tri- I was trying to think of a third for the trifecta of Mary Poppins and Amelia Bedelia and the cat in the hat is a great one. Yeah, and so, right the the cat in the hat is a is an attempted sort of psychic palliative for uh abandonment by the mother. Right. Because what why why has mother gone away? What murderous or erotic errand is mother (laughs) (laughs) is mother pursuing? I can't take credit for these ideas. These are from uh, Louis Menand, uh, who teaches at Harvard and, and wrote the just the canonical um analysis of any work of literature uh about the cat in the hat and the cat in the hat comes back, which includes a a a history of Dr. Seuss, and it was called um Cat People, uh, a title that he had before the New Yorker short story Cat Person, um, that was such a sensation a couple of years ago. So the the uh, yeah the the Cat in the Hat is about um, trying to distract yourself from the reality of loss, right? Through various sorts of um, uh, 
hijinks, right? Through various sorts of tricks and, and distractions and disobedience and misbehavior and transgression. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really work. It sort of predicts the 60s counterculture and also the kind of the failure uh, of the, the 60s counterculture, right? And, and Mary Poppins, at least in the, in the Disney film, and we're, we're talking about the films as the texts here and not the, the novels, which are sort of different in, in tone, um, significantly from the, from the films to the point where, uh, to, to the point where P.L. Travers and Walt Disney had like a serious falling out and Disney had to do a huge revisionist history, uh, version of history of, of like Walt Disney hagiography hey with, uh, Tom Hanks, no less, no less a, uh, hagiographer hey than Tom Hanks playing Walt Disney in a movie called Saving Mr. Banks. So, oh, that's what that's about. Yeah. Oh, it's, about, so, it's about the conflict between P.L. Travers and Walt Disney in the run-up to Making Mary Poppins. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So the the uh, the first film, because um, the films are our texts, right, is about neglected children. And, uh, you know, this sort of British children should be seen and not heard style of children. Um, dad is wrapped up in his career at the bank. He's just a, a sort of moneymaker. Mom is a suffragette, and she is so devoted to her political causes that he, uh, she has no time for the children. And the children write a list of desirable attributes in a nanny, uh, cheery disposition, etc., the father reads it, denounces it as ridiculous, rips it up and throws it into the fire, and a wind carries it out the chimney, and Mary Poppins comes, uh, summoned by this, uh, by this ripped up letter, and quotes it back to Mr. Banks, the elder, as he, um, you know, uh, to, to apply for the, the position of nanny or, or governess or something like that, I suppose. This is about children who have sort of too many parental figures in their lives, but none of them an adequate parent except for their uh, dead mother. So the kind of the psychic wound here is not neglect, it's loss, it's grief, right? And also a kind of parentification uh, where the children have to parent the hapless adults, right? And that you, you see this in the first movie where they're like skittering across the park and like making plans about like you know if we buy day old bread it'll only cost you, you mean the, the first scene of this movie, yeah, yeah which sorry. is the second movie yeah yeah, yeah, yeah or yeah, the yeah. third movie or whatever oh, got yeah, it got, yeah. it, got yeah. it the um the of this film right like they're going to you know they're they're going to kind of manage manage the household and uh mother always did this you know it it uh it, it you know it probably were the stress it probably were the stress of uh of dealing with with michael banks what done her in you know what i mean mm. uh <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I, I can definitely see this household as being kind of a handful if you are the one responsible adult in the in the relationship trying to to manage the hapless cook and the the hapless father and and three three children yeah it's interesting the um the bowl is really interesting to think about because that for me was the other big symbol because obviously Mary Poppins Returns is not a samurai movie. It's just a movie that employs way too many blowing cherry blossoms, uh, though it is about death to an extent. But this 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 whole thing with the kids in the bowl is interesting. And it reminded me of the too short and inadequate Uma Thurman Golden Bowl movie. Mm. Did you watch that? Like no. the. The, there's a Henry James, the Golden Bull, right? It's a story yep. about infidelity and it's sort of an epic tale uh, that is kind of sad. 
<laughs> very sad. I don't remember the specifics of it. I saw the movie a long time ago, but I do remember the idea that there's a bowl and the bowl is cracked and that the cracked bowl has something to do with people being unfaithful to each other and not like supporting each other and, and cheating and sleeping around and other sorts of bad things. So correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it's sort of a family legacy movie uh, because the golden bowl is like this thing that you could have kept that was precious and it broke. There's like a number of indications in this movie, which I also think are not. I don't I hesitate to say not intentional because whether they're intentional or not doesn't really matter. But like not they're like the 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 core of the movie is so in need of some sort of center of gravity that things like this pull on it and make me think that this is what the movie felt like it was really about, which is like. Is the mom really go on like what you're talking about with the cat in the hat? Like, is the mom on some erotic errand, right? Like, did the mom actually die or did she just leave? Because there's these like weird scenes about like sex and drugs and booze and like uh, and the bowl, right, which is like the symbol of the mom. It's the Yonic symbol, right, that's been the that's been handed to the kids and the sort of wrong and upside down. I mean, obviously, the movie, the upside down sequence, right, like where Mary Poppins is talking to her second cousin several times removed, who's her senior, and it's all flipped upside down. Right. It's like it's flipped upside down. And Mary Poppins is the one who has to set her straight, even though Mary Poppins is the younger one. Um, also, I mean, geez, that whole that whole thing, too. Like, uh, I don't want to take too much of a left turn on this. But like, did did you think about menstruation during that part of the movie? Because I sure did. <laughs> Maybe I've been overthinking for too long. But, but basically, OK, OK. So if you're still listening and you <laughs> didn't see this movie. All right. Meryl Streep shows up in the middle of it and sings a song about how once a month she feels disorganized and doesn't feel like she's up to doing her job because everything seems kind of mixed up. And she refers to it as turning turtle, meaning that something sort of like a turtle flips on its back and flips on its front uh, and has to sort of like right itself is how she kind of describes it. And this seemed to me like a really weird menstruation metaphor that was thoroughly inappropriate. And I think the only reason that that really crept in is that I had no other idea what the H was going on in this movie. Uh, but I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of children's literature that's about menstruation, at least yeah. symbolically, uh, like even outside of Judy Bloom. You know, right. Yeah, but, yeah that's true. I shouldn't just dismiss it because it probably I could speak with more confidence in this. This movie seems to be built from made from old stories. And in the older stories, they would probably be more comfortable with hiding symbols like this that are a little bit on the nose. But there's like a tree that's dead on top, but has rich roots beneath the soil. That's that's characterized as a woman that a, that a man tree makes love to. And this is like a song that is sung to the children. There's a woman who like once a month goes like kind of crazy uh, because like loses her composure and gets turned upside down because of this thing that she attributes to this animal. There's this sort of animal nature thing that disorients her. And Mary Poppins teaches her how to get it under control. Right. And in the context of all this stuff, the kids are given this beautiful ceramic bowl, which in place of a mother and they're supposed to take care of the bowl. Right. That's the idea is that these kids have this bowl in their room, which they believe is like a priceless antique, but it's not really worth much. If you were to take it to Antiques Roadshow, they'd be like, well, you know, it's worth about 15 bucks. But, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a great sentimental keepsake. But the point being that, like, the kids are given the sort of remembrance of the yoni. Sort of like the sort of the sort of feminine uh, the sort of feminine device, the, right? The like distinctly pre-adolescent children, right? Yes, yes, yes. And because they, they're not supposed to be, they're they're not in a situation where they can be taking care of fine china, let alone you know like sexual organs. And and this idea that the mom is kind of gone, and then the bowl is broken, 
and, and all this stuff is sort of happening, it all seems to point to this narrative, which is not in the movie, about the mother – the, I guess the mother is still around or the mother left or what was the mother like when she was there? I guess maybe to read it more kindly, it's more like, well, what was this mother even like? Uh, and I, and I, maybe this idea is that like underneath the surface of this movie is the presence of the mother as not just an authority figure, but like a woman, you know, an adult and a sort of sexual person, uh, which is sort of part of what she was that the children aren't. And the children are forced in, forced in the situation where, like, they don't know what to do with the bowl. They don't know what to do with the tree. They don't know what to do with the upside-down room. They don't know what to do with anything because they're kids. But they have to because their dad is is a failure <laughs> and, and a, a loser and is incapable of handling himself. Um, and I guess what? Is Mary Poppins – That's my, to take it all around, this is my question to you, Matt, which is that, like – it seems to me that the situation puts the par- the kids in this in the role of having to take care of the adults. And Mary Poppins comes to the children and provides them with something. And what is the something that Mary Poppins provides these children with in this movie? That is my question to you. I mean, I yeah, it, I think like something like structure, you know, okay. like, right? Like something something like reliability. It seems like I mean, it seems like mom was the emotional laborer of the family, just from the way that that she's described. Now, being being dead or gone, she's described in highly idealized terms. Um, by you know by any by everyone uh and anyone like oh it was better when mom was around mom took care of me mom calmed me a bit mom called me down mom always knew the right thing to say to the children uh and now she's gone and now she's gone and and everything's everything's a mess without that um without that feminine energy but that like mary poppins is a kind of is uh a woman, but she has sort of a non-generative feminine energy, or rather her generativity is not the generativity of like, of childbirth and of like having and, and rearing children. Um, her generativity is the generativity of kind of like imagination. And so I, I guess like what she provides, like in, in a kind of psychoanalytic, reading of the movie is she provides uh psychological resources internal psychological resources for the children um in terms uh, d- to help themselves using their imaginations right and so the idea that you can sort of imagine that your departed mother is still with you or you know your um that you kind of go on a journey in your dreams to sort of fix the bowl, which was a sort of failure on your part to kind of honor the, the memory of your mother and her legacy and her like, uh, uh, what she sort of left to you, right? That you can go do that. You can dive into that yourself and, and, you know, you'll be, you'll be okay. Um, and, and you'll, you'll make yourself, um, I, you know, I don't know the, 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 you'll, you'll kind of not make yourself a new mother, but you'll kind of provide, uh, yourself some resources that can supply your needs in, in those times, but it's very non-sexual, right? Like it's very non, uh, uh, non mothering. It's, it's more like, uh, um, I don't know. It is, it is more kind of psychoanalytic, right? Because she's a, she is definitely Mary Poppins is definitely like neurosis inducing, isn't she? Yeah. That's the part of Mary Poppins that I struggle with the most and not just this movie, but Mary Poppins as a character, which is that she is all about, you should do your chores, right? And like there, if you imagine that there's one axis 
and there's one axis and on one end of the axis is order and on one end of the axis is chaos. Uh, you know, Mary, this is how Mr. Banks in the Mary Poppins movies historically sees things. He sees, you know, order is good and chaos is bad. And then Mary Poppins comes in and lays down an additional axis between uh, kind of a, what is sort of a grim adherence to form and a kind of imaginative participation in your own life. Like, you know, between sort of like imagination and conformity, to put it, make it very simple. And and she lays this axis across that axis of order, but she's oriented towards order. She wants you to do her your chores, but she wants you to have fun while you're doing your chores. She wants you to take a certain amount of self-ownership in doing the things in your life that will help you prosper, such as like wash yourself in a regular basis and like wear clothes and clean things up. And like these will make you happy, but don't do them in such a way that they take away your sense of who you are as a person. And since you're a child, your sense of who you might become and your kind of faculty of creativity and, and sort of childlike freedom that might lead you to blooming into some new kind of person, right? Mm. Like so, so that's kind of what I struggle with with Mary Poppins because, in at least in American you know movie literature, the the sort of axis of uh, kind of imagination and versus conformity tends to orient imagination towards chaos, and uh, in like an Animal House, you know, this idea of like oh you know like the the dean or any sort of animal house story where the dean is orderly and joyless and you and also is sort of dehumanizing and cruel and so you either kind of like do what the dean wants which is be awful and hate your life um and sort of pro, you know participate in the sort of conformist discriminatory regime that despises you and seeks to destroy you or you can be what the dean doesn't want and be an agent of chaos who destroys everything around you but is happy and like Mary Poppins would dispute both of those things and would say well why don't you just like do not do what the dean wants, but still get good grades. I believe that is what Camus wrote, right? One, <laughs> one, one must imagine Bluto happy. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's the sort of thing where it's like, what did the uh, did the who who is it that gives up when they bomb Pearl Harbor in the Animal House speech? But like whoever it is, Mary Poppins corrects him. He's like, actually, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, and here, I'll show you. Open my umbrella. Let's fly away to, to Okinawa or not uh, uh, Omaha Beach. Uh, any number of places where the World War II happened. Um, at any rate, okay. So putting that aside, you brought up another issue here, which I think is important. Which is, um, and and it might be part of the uh to risk another charged uh, indirect metaphor the secret sauce that made the first mary poppins movie work which is that uh because i don't think it's necessarily a foregone conclusion that the first mary poppins movie works i've watched it a bunch of times and it is somewhat crazy um and uh which is that mary poppins sexuality the sexuality of mary poppins in the first mary poppins movie with julie andrews julie andrews has always been this sort of cipher with regards to sexuality, at least that's my contention. I don't know if you feel the same way or with whether the American critical public has felt the same way over the years, which is that Julie Andrews plays these very composed characters who are very moral and are, uh, of course, very virtuosic. But you can't deny that she's like a beautiful, attractive woman. And and it's and you can you can try to. And most of the movies do deny this, you know, but but the reality of it is that like Mary uh, Julie Andrews is sexy. And uh, and like when. When Dick Van Dyke in the first Mary Poppins movie is singing like, it's a jolly holiday with Mary, Mary makes the world so fun. I mean, you can't not see 
a potential romantic relationship between Mary and the chimney sweep in that movie. Oh, sure. Right? And they're, like, they're a little, yeah, and it's like a wrong side of the tracks kind of thing. And they're yeah. good. And they're, they are flirtatious or at least warm towards each other in a way that, that, uh, kind of goes beyond friendship, right? Goes beyond yeah. the kind of the brotherly and sisterly. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think one of the things about these Mary Poppins movies is that the world of adults isn't portrayed in a sensible manner because it's portrayed from the perspective of the children. And that kind of makes an excuse for it. Like, we don't really have to see what happens between Julie Andrews and the and between Mary Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke in that movie. Like, they, they get together, do they not get together? Like, the kids wouldn't see that. This is just what they sort of partake of and, and appreciate and then wonder at that sort of spurs their imagination. Uh, we don't have to actually talk about whether you have the bearer bonds, right? Like, or whether, oh, no, you forgot that you have a bunch of Bitcoin. You're like, oh, okay, movie's over. Um, but but just that, like, um, that that the things that are sublimated in Mary, in Mary Poppins movies, which I guess there are now three uh, that are that are worth talking about. Um, or is, is interesting, and in this movie, this brings us around to Lin Manuel Miranda, who uh, participates in the movie, but I would hesitate to say plays a character. Dis- uh, Dis- Disney it boy, Lin Manuel yeah. Miranda. You know? <laughs> I mean, was correct me if I'm wrong. He's the new. He's the heir to Angela Lansbury, right? Because he's you know he was in. Uh, I guess he wasn't in. No, he's on the soundtrack of Moana, and he wrote he wrote the songs. It was very interesting. He he did not write the songs for this film. The songs yes. were written by uh, Mark Scheiman, who is the musical theater composer, uh, who I know most from um, writing the South Park movie, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and d- the brilliant songs in the South Park movie, which he collaborated with uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone on. Um, not Robert Lopez, who did the Book of Mormon musical with those guys, but but uh, the South Park movie, and then uh, also the Hairspray movie as well. Right. And he is an incredible. Um, he's an incredible musical theater composer. Like I think, as far as structure, uh, as far as like uh, you know the Ding on Sich, right? Like the the songs in themselves. Um, the <laughs> Ding being not German for uh, Dink being not German for thing, but like uh, the Ding of the ringing bells that are all over the soundtrack of this movie. Right? In themselves, these songs are excellent. As uh, as pieces of a dramatic narrative, they have. No no purpose but yes. <laughs> uh but like but and and that that was like my overarching reaction to this movie which was with the exception of the um trip the light fantastic number which was dumb and the uh a lot of the the meryl streep sequence which was also dumb um the the whole whole every part of this movie was really um excellently crafted and didn't add up to anything right and that's yeah. like and and uh, you know i don't know the problem was story right the problem was a, a, a reason to care right the problem is that like a movie should be a work of visual storytelling depicting the dramatic actions of a group of interesting characters and and really it it failed on all fronts there I guess it was yeah. visual in that I looked at something well, the whole time. Everybody who sees this movie, I think, has the same reaction to it. Mary Poppins Returns, which is that it is long. Yeah. Uh, every pe- people will have different sorts of reactions other than that, but I think everybody who sees it more or less is going to realize feel like it's long. Yeah. And it's not that long. 
You know, it's it's not you know, it's not meet Joe Black. Right? It's it's only a, a two hundred two hours and 15 minutes. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, Bad Boys 2 is also long, but uh, and too long. But but the point is that, like, what is it that makes this movie long and I th- and feel long? And I think it is partly that the the expectations that are set up for the tone and theme of the movie in the beginning are very quickly frustrated and thrown out the window, leaving the audience a little bit unmoored as to what is happening next or why there is not a sense of anticipation in this movie for the next thing to happen. Part of this is that, of course, now, okay, this, here's the, here's the bigger, we've talked about how the movie has kind of a problem in that the core conflict of the movie doesn't really represent a conflict because it's sort of, it's a huge kind of uh, the movie. The problem was always solved all along and nothing that the main characters did mattered at all, which is that the money for the house was always in existence. And it was just a question of whether the bank was going to figure out or not in time. Uh, But the movie also has that moment where the kid has this certificate of the shares in the bank so okay, so there are. Oh, I have something. Reasons. I have something very important to say about this because the way they did it was stupid and wrong. Yes, uh, you want to go ahead and say it because that's what I was about to say. Oh yeah, so yeah. it sh- the certificate shouldn't have been some random drawing that he found in a box. The certificate should have been on the back of the ten pound note that the father drew for the kid in the first scene of the movie. Yeah, right? I, I thought it was at first when he did yeah, it. That exactly. makes more sense. I mean, it's yeah. because it's in that scene, like in that very scene. Oh, certificate, certificate, certificate. We need a certificate. Here's a useless scrap of paper that I'm going to draw and give it to him. And like at the end, like you you can imagine, right? A much better oh, Wizard yeah. of Oz, much better Wizard of Oz ending to this where Mary Poppins says, little Georgie, do you still have the 10 pound note that your father made for you? Why, yes, Mary Poppins. Yes, I do. Why don't you unfold that and turn it over? I, Marvin Acme, being of sound mind and body, do hereby declare that the the venue known as Toontown will be the property (laughs) of those lovable characters, the Toons! Yay! Or or even just have the boy try to pay Dick Van Dyke for the mortgage with the 10-pound note and have him turn it over and have it be a a certificate for 20,000 pounds. Oh, yeah. Okay, you know, your way, your way is actually better but that yeah and the same idea i only got it because you had mentioned it so for those of you who haven't seen the movie about a third of the way through the movie one of the big one of the big problems it's not a conflict it's a problem is that we live in a sort of pre-diehard world in which securities that are traded like stocks and bonds exist as physical pieces of paper like this is a key plot element in the original diehard movie which would make the plot of the original diehard movie not work today which is that they have a bunch of bearer bonds where if you have the physical certificate no matter how you got it you own the bond right and so there is a, st- a stock certificate that exists as a physical piece of paper that need that in this case you it's not a bearer bond like they they need to they use the certificate to prove ownership but without the certificate they have no proof of ownership and like a third of the way through the movie the little kid takes this drawing that his dad was going to throw out that his dad made of the family and like cuts it up, tears it up and puts it on it to, to patch the kite. And the audience sees that on the back of the drawing is the stock certificate that is going to save the day. And so the audience knows from that point on through the rest of the movie that they, that nothing that the characters do matters. And the only thing that matters is whether they find the kite by the end of the movie, which they have not lost. 
which is like in the house, right? So it's like, so the, the, the answer is the kite. And we all know it's like a Blue's Clues episode where everybody in the audience is like, look at the chair, look at the chair. Yeah, but it's, not, right? it's like, not, that dramatic irony isn't even exploited to like make no. anything, to make anything happen, right? They should like, the kite should be almost thrown out. It should narrowly escape burning. It should blow away and float through London. And we right. should cut to the kite, like blowing around, like a bunch of birds should pick it up. It should yeah. go to France and they come back, right? Like the kite. Kite should go everywhere. Yeah. The kite should go to the moon, right? Like, uh, <laughs> or they could just be chasing the kite. The whole movie could just be Mary Poppins and the kids chasing the kite from like cartoon dimension to cartoon dimension, yep. like bed knobs and booms broomsticks. Which is but, perhaps. But once again, show. once again, the kite it it should not be. Uh, they screwed it up. It should not be on the random drawing that comes in a random point of the movie. It should be on the object that uh, on the object that is used in the scene where the stock certificate is first name checked. Right, that should be it. Even if that ended up being something that he ripped up and put on the thing, it is on the certificate is on the wrong. I will I will die on this hill. <laughs> I will. <laughs> you don't, well, the, the the cherry blossoms are blowing, Matt, and you're standing dramatically in slow motion holding your katana so i'm sure that the hill will apply pete it is it is always we overthinkers who pay yeah (laughs) oh man so yeah speaking of bed knobs and broomsticks angela lansbury is in this movie i was going to say for some reason but then i thought you would be mad at me if i said that (laughs) bite your tongue (laughs) she she is a goddess yes queen angela you know (laughs) But because oh, Julie Andrews is not in this movie. I know. Uh, that's that's very sad. I mean, a little bit. So why is Julie Andrews not in this movie? I have I mean, I there is a uh, there's a uh, purported reason. There's an official reason. There is a sort of dark reason that everyone assumes to be true. And there's the real reason. Right. Like yeah. the the official reason is that she graciously uh, bowed out to allow Emily Blunt to be in in the movie uh, to really own the character of Mary Poppins and not to like interfere with that. The. Um, I mean, you know, what would Julie Andrews have played the balloon lady? Would Julie Andrews have played the Meryl Streep role? I don't know. Uh, the the official reason is, I mean, the reason everyone assumes to be true is that they like they tried and failed, and that all of this stuff in the trades about like, well, there never really was any discussion about having Julie Andrews in this movie. Bull. Pucky, <laughs> you know. <laughs> of course, there was discussion about having Julie Andrews in this movie. Like this, that that it's it's inconceivable, uh, and that word means what I think it means. That um, that Julie Andrews was not talked about for this movie. The the what I think is the real reason, the sad reason, is that she can't sing. That you know right. that throat surgery to remove nodules destroyed her vocal cords and she can't yeah. sing. She and had cancer, didn't she? Didn't she have like or was it nodule or did she have full on throat cancer? No, I don't think it was throat cancer. Oh, I think okay. she had. I think she had nodules and an overly ambitious uh, uh, auto nasolaryngologist. Um, you know, thought he could like cut them off and be the savior of Julie Andrews and ended up destroying her ability to to sing. Uh, I may have I, I may have some of the specifics wrong, but in in some, I mean, that's that's like the that's the incredibly sad thing that happened to Julie Andrews. And like, there's no there's no Julie Andrews in this movie if Julie Andrews can't sing. You know what I mean? And that's that's I I think that's the real reason. That's my that's my take yeah. anyway. That was my guess as well. I might be confusing Julie Andrews with Linda Ronstadt or 
you know, what, or the guy from Spin Doctors. But there's, I mean, it's the same deal, right? Which is that she had a, uh, and Julian, of course, Linda Ronstadt has, has Parkinson's even on top of all the cancer stuff. But, um, but just the idea that like, uh, the, 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 the biology of, and the sort of sad truths of humanity do not wait for the Walt Disney company to decide how it's going to plan things, right? As, as Stan Lee's, uh, cameo in, in, uh, infinity in Avengers Endgame will no doubt, uh, try to not try to reverse, right? Like D- Disney is still trying to figure out how to, uh, not care whether people live or die. Uh, but so far they still have to care at least a little bit that human beings are physical, uh, physical creatures with biological realities. And uh, yeah, it is quite sad that Julie Andrews couldn't be in this movie because she couldn't. I, I, I suspect that's the same reason that I, I was suspecting the same thing that you were suspecting I, or that she was just in such ill health that she couldn't come. But I, she probably isn't. I don't know. I don't know. There's just so much speculation. I'm just I'm bothered. I thought she was going to be the balloon lady. I was confused that the balloon lady was Angela Lansbury because it was sort of like so much of the movie was nostalgic and it's particularly so much of the sort of bow that they were putting on top of the movie was nostalgic. Like this was a movie where the problem was we have to make a Mary Poppins movie. And the solution is let's sort of bring back things that worked before and, and that will finish it. Um, and uh, and that's why Dick Van Dyke shows up at the end, because he did it before. And, uh, and in that sense, it sort of would make sense to put the coup de gras on there by having – you know, the big song at the end be led by somebody that's relevant to Mary Poppins, but it's not. It's Langella Lansbury, who's relevant to Beauty and the Beast. And I would think of relevant to Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Those of you not familiar with Bedknobs and Broomsticks, it's the other big Disney movie that's half live action, half cartoon prior to the era of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, there's a couple of others, but that's that's what when I think of. It's like Mary Poppins is the biggest one. Right. Where it's like part live action, part cartoon. And then it's Bedknobs and Broomsticks where it's part live action, part cartoon. And then like you have to wait a long time before you get to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and stuff. But um, where there's like some elements sort of. But uh, but yeah, I mean, Matt, you, you of course you say Yas Queen, Angela Lansbury. What was Angela Lansbury doing in this movie? Like, I, because I, I was sort of trying to connect her to the history and legacy of what was happening. Was she was she there to sort of represent the legacy of Disney? Uh, was she there to represent kind of a particular specific sort of voice? Like, Meryl, was she like there like Meryl Streep was because they couldn't find a uh, a competent music the- musical theater actress under the age of seventy to be in this movie? <laughs> I mean, that's very cruel to say. And I mean, rude you're, to say, you're not. Um, I, I know Pete that you're not a millennial. Uh, no, so this no, might not. I'm a millennial, yeah. <laughs> and I'm getting jiggy with it. Yes. Uh, so this not might not be um, uh, in your language, but what what Angela Lansbury was doing in this movie is known as slaying. <laughs> Also, Meryl Streep is under 70, just barely. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I mean, actually, like Emily Blunt and Meryl Streep were in the Disney uh, Into the Woods. Disney made that, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, or Touchstone or something like that. Like one, it was a, not a Disney animation movie, but I think it was a Disney movie. And that, that was, you know, um, also includes uh, some, some weird sexual undertones as well. Uh, And also um, Chris Pine ripping his shirt open on the, on the precipice of a waterfall. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's funny it's interesting in this movie who gets old and who doesn't get old, right? The 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 Mary Poppins doesn't get old. The Dick Van Dyke character 
I mean, because the the Lin Manuel actually we should talk about him, but like Lin Manuel doesn't get old. Um, in this movie, he's young because Mary Poppins' sidekick is young, right? But but uh, Dick Van Dyke gets old, ironically, because he plays he play as a young man. He played the old guy, his character in the second movie's father, uh, in old age makeup in the first movie, and now he's that. But he's gotten old, and Angela Lansbury gets old, right? And that's like, who who is allowed to get old is, I think, an interesting thing. Why is the balloon lady who belongs to the magical universe old, um, and yet Mary Poppins and Dick Van Dyke are not, uh, who also, be- uh, not, uh, sorry, Lin-Manuel uh, Van Miranda, who, do- who, you know, I mean, Dick Van Dyke, Lin-Manuel Miranda, three names, um, the uh, who are not allowed to to age who have to who sort of have to be young because of their connection to childlike wonder uh, a theme that is sort of touched on kind of scraped up against you know <laughs> but not really not really cash out uh in in the film you know the the and they're all they're almost all women not dick van dyke but he's he doesn't fill this role but like the meryl streep character and the angela lansbury character and to a certain extent the cook right it, it, like they are all um they're all women and they're all they're all old but like the i don't know like it's it's see the the, the reason it's confusing, Pete. The reason it's hard. To, yeah. The reason it's hard to parse out is that it's non. Is that the the like the allegorical side, the kind of the the metaphorical side doesn't line up. Really, there's been no transformation in anybody that should allow them to fly. Right. Mm. And that's that's sort of the problem that we're having. I think if if we could read the movie as having a reason that now everyone can like hold a balloon and uh fly up into the air, then the Angela Lansbury um the Angela Lansbury character would make a lot more sense. Yeah, because I think because what I'm thinking as you're saying this is it comes to mind there's one character who doesn't get old that you did mention. Which is the wife, yeah. the mom, because the mom never grows old because she dies young. And this whole idea of where do the lost things go in in and, in Cherry Tree Lane, the cherry blossoms grow. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> row on row. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the 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 wolf guy and the banker both wear a poppy on their lapel or at least a red flower, if not a poppy specifically. Um, and uh but but that Mary Poppins floats away on her on her umbrella and she never gets old and she's the sort of stand in for the mom or at least th- that's the tricky part is that she is she isn't really the stand in for the mom, but she really is the stand in for the mom. And and she shows up and teaches the kids how to deal with their situation vis-a-vis their mom. And then she leaves. And it's interesting in the sense of like, well, who who does transform and who can fly? Uh, the dead mom can transform and the dead man- mom could fly. But then the implication, if that's the vocabulary, then what the story is saying is that there's a, a, a coal gas leak at the end of the movie and the whole Banks family is killed by their stove, you know, like in like the last 20 minutes of the film. As in like the, the movie, the, the ad ending only makes sense if everybody at the end is dead. And, and you know, which is I mean, you know what I mean? Like the only people who've really flown 
prior to this are like people who are kind of visiting from beyond the veil. But instead, we're supposed to believe that like the barrier between humanity and sort of greater than humanity is joy. Uh, But the movie isn't about being happy. The movie is about uh, coming to terms you know, the movie is about more about emotional tolerance than it is like, about liter- like emotional li- thrill. Literal terms, as in like the terms of a negotiation, of a deal, of a of a mortgage, of a loan. Right. right? Like yeah, 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 a negotiable <laughs> instrument. Yeah. This movie is a series of negoti- of negotiable instruments, and uh, and the ending. I definitely was feeling like uh, I mean, man, did I did I talk about this this Michael Lewis book last week? I think I might have mentioned it. I'm not sure when we talked about Into the Spider Verse, and I talked about kind of like cogn- I read this book. No, on cogn- no, no. Flex. We talked about it. We talked about it uh, in our prep, but it never came up on the podcast. Yeah. So, 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 so bring read, it up as we. Yeah. I read the book, uh, The Undoing Project, which is a um, it's a sort of a biography of Daniel Kahneman and uh, and uh, Amos Tversky. Uh, Tversky died before the award was given, but they are uh, Nobel Prize laureates in, I believe, economics, even though they're nominally psychologists who uh, studied cognitive biases. And just I'm not going to go into depth on the book right now. But one thing I will say is that there is a story in the book that is off color, but great. And I made my movie. The movie made me think of it, which was they talked about colonoscopies back in the day. They used to do colonoscopies without anesthesia back in the day, which is they would stick a camera up there uh, with no pain reliever of any sort, and let, let alone knocking you out. Or maybe you'd have some sort of pain reliever. I don't know. But they didn't knock you out for it. And when they had to pull the camera out, it hurt a lot. And because it hurt a lot, people didn't come back to get their follow-up colonoscopies, with the result that a lot of those people died of colon cancer. So to get people to come back for more colonoscopies, this uh, psychologist who has been studying cognitive biases said, well, the issue is that people don't remember experiences in a uniform way. They don't remember all the information about what they went through. If they have a really bad experience that's very short and very acute, they remember how bad it was when it was at its worst. But if they have an experience that's longer, that doesn't an end so acute, even if within it, it includes a period of time that is just as short and just as acute as the first one, they will remember it less, more fondly, like with less pain. They'll remember less pain, even if there was at, at the very least the same amount of pain, provided that the end is not the worst part. And this is why I'm talking about Mary Poppins Returns vis-a-vis colonoscopies, which is that this is a movie that kind of goes along through a third act that doesn't make any sense and, uh, and ends. Through, and then a, it through has- a second act that's too long. Yeah, a second act that's too long, a first act that has tonal problems, a second act that's too long, a third act that doesn't make any sense, and it ends. And at that point, if it ended, I don't think a lot of people would feel that great about it. But then it throws in this like 15 to 20 minute section at the end with Angela Lansbury and everybody's flying on balloons. So what they did with the colonoscopies is that they decided that they were not going to pull it out fast. That they would pull it out and that if they left it in there just a little bit for about three minutes, even though that hurt, it hurt less enough than what the first one, how the first one hurt, that people were more likely to come back and get followed up colonoscopies. And so I'm saying that that the balloon scene at the end of Mary Poppins is like holding that colonoscopy camera in your rectum for an additional three minutes so that you don't remember the end of the movie as being the scene that made no sense. But instead, remember it as the fun balloon scene with Angela Lansbury. Uh, maybe this is a bit elaborate, too elaborate of a metaphor, but um, but but I just don't. I, the bottom line of that is that I don't feel or think 
that the balloon imagery in the Angela Lansbury scene is connected to the imagery of flying that's in the rest of the movie, which is what I said already. Yeah. Um, and Lin-Manuel Miranda has no character to play in this movie. He, his character has no objective, no goals. Uh, he only is around because he was in the previous movie, which he keeps reminding people of. And there's no reason that the chimney sweeps would help the children. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any other feelings about Lin Manuel no, Miranda? It's not. I mean, he's he's super charismatic. He's actually oh, a yeah. be- he's a better singer in this than he is on the Hamilton soundtrack. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I actually I like I like uh, this Disney musical theater writing. I like a lot of the musical theater aspects of this film. It has musical theater actors in it. It was cast by Bernie Telsey, who is the uh, big Broadway musical theater um, casting director. And it has uh, uh, Paul Gemignani did the arrangements, the orchestrations, who is a, a big Broadway um, orchestrator, musical director. Uh, and Mark Scheiman did the, the, the songs like there, there's a lot. I even like the, the musical song with all the body stuff uh, that I think you think is weird. I think it connects to a tradition. Oh. There is an English tradition of that kind of song. Um, that I, you know, I think is a lot of fun. And that's by the, that I think is the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in that it's the, it's the song with the, like the story interludes, you know? Um, yeah, 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 definitely. I liked it. I just didn't, didn't know why it was in this movie or a children's movie, but yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah. So this musical theater elements are good. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were and that's, that, and that, up, that is where I, that's my, that's my end of the colonoscopy, right? Like that, <laughs> That, like I, I remember individual parts of this movie very fondly, but it it didn't add up to a to a kind of coherent thing, and so I don't I don't have a strong feeling about it because that takes you know narrative characters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reason the chimney sweep helps Mary Poppins in the first movie is that the chimney sweep is in love with Mary Poppins. Yeah. And that's why he's dancing and showing off in front of her all the time. And that's why he's excited to hang out with the children. And that's why the two of them serve as a sort of surrogate fun parent group for the kids. Right. And there, there isn't yeah. even it, you could do it that like uh, that Lin-Manuel wants to like, uh, you know, is into Emily Mortimer. Right. And he but who is friend zoning him. And like he he's doing all these things, adventures with the kids so that his angle is really to like be a fun uncle to the kids so that Emily Mortimer notices him. But that's not, that's not what no. happens. That's not flesh, flesh. They, 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 it's a half measure. They're like, yeah. well, he's in love with somebody. She's not really in the movie, but he's in love with her. <laughs> so like, that's good. That gives him a reason to sing and dance, right? Uh, him and all his bros who are like doing their Broadway dancing. Uh, I mean, I'm like, they can do that just like shot for shot at the Oscars or the Tonys, whichever one. Oh the, yeah, the, for sure. You know, yeah. you know what I thought? Uh, when I saw all the lamplighters coming with their torches, I thought that class warfare will be followed by the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> I just thought that I didn't come to this movie to be gaslit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's turn to some comments. We haven't done listener comments in a while, Pete, and there are some uh, there are some great ones. I'm going to go all the way back to our. Uh, to our podcast on Creed 2 or Rocky 10 or Rocky 12. Well, I'm sorry, I don't know how many Rockies <laughs> there are, but the what there were five and then Rocky Balboa. It's Rocky 8, Matt. It's Rocky six, 8. It's 8. Got it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this uh, Russia is like Downtown Abbey, the name of our episode. So uh, Three Act Destructure writes a fantastic essay. In the comments of uh, this episode, uh, the comments on that episode and the. Um, 
And uh, I'm going to try and read the nut graph because it's very uh, it's it's extended. It's worth a, it's worth a read. So go back to uh, episode 544 and check it out if you're interested. But he says uh, um, there's a theme woven throughout. I'm sorry. I'm editing. I'm editing uh, in real time as I'm trying to to read the thesis st- statement of this essay about the relationship between our tangible problems and our existential problems in Creed Two, and wh- how one often serves as the solution to the other. This is a film in which the solution to depression is a crying baby, and the solution to a broken light. Uh, is a father reconnecting with his son. There's always been a blue-collar puritanical streak running through the Rocky movies in which work is the cure for the mind. Mm, yes, and that's the, I love that. That is the thesis statement of uh, of this essay, which I uh, which I will link up in the show notes on on this episode, so that everyone you know just in your podcast app just find the find the link and go read this thing because it's it is definitely definitely worth your time. So, what do you think of that, Pete? Uh, the idea that work is the cure for the mind. I, I, I liked it. I think it, it hits the nail on the head. I think with regards to the Rocky movies, particularly the Rocky Four image of rocky you know running through the mountains and lifting up the cart which is in the heart of what's happening in creed 2 with creed in the desert and with creed kind of we talked about the sort of historiography in creed the sort of how are we telling the story of the history of these people and um and i think the other side of it is that you know work is the cure for the mind the glorification of work is the cure for the marginalization of the working class I would say as as another element of it, right, which is that like people like Rocky, people like Adonis are partly marginalized because of the background that they come from, not necessarily being the son of the heavyweight champion, but in Adonis's case, being black in America and in Rocky's case, you know, being Italian in America earlier uh, in the 70s and different, obviously. But um, but uh, it, it not that it wasn't also rough at that time to be black in America, because it sure was. But but the point being that like. Um, Rockies, in order to, it's like there's a lot of like sculpture and art uh, and photography uh, in the 20th century that has to do with kind of putting a face on working people. And when I say working people, I don't necessarily just mean people with jobs. I mean people who have to do manual labor in order to survive, you know, like because they don't have access to other sorts of resources. And, uh, and, and they, you know, they come from all colors and all creeds, creed, right? But, uh, but, but there's a lot – there's a particular sculptor – oh, I wish I could remember his name – who did bronze figures of like boxers and farmers that I really used to like. And I just remember looking at that and being like, yeah, this is – what it is is it's taking the kind of the discus thrower, the Greek god, these sort of elite images of the human body in motion that belong to the upper class and kind of bring it and saying like, no, like lower class people, their bodies do this, right? Their bodies do this. And so it's tricky because on one hand, I think that there's a bit of a of – a, opposition to the notion like that it's inappropriate to be so ascetic but on the other hand you know it's not like this was the first time that these guys experienced pain i guess it gets that way in the later rocky movies but it isn't that way in the beginning Hmm. that these are guys who already experience pain uh and so them experiencing pain isn't the change but in rocky five and when rocky four it is because then they have a sex robot. So if you want to talk about it more, you should go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John C. on episode 545, which was our episode on uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet, um, does a, uh, a similar, a similarly kind of deep dive into uh, kind of – I guess we talked about it 
sort of offhand, it wasn't really the main point, but our, our talk about internet monetization models and how that sort of does, mm-hmm. uh, how that, it, it, you know, creates a problem, which, uh, John C calls the outrage feedback loop. And his, uh, conclusion is A, we all need to get a lot better at supporting media. We want to stay healthy. Cough, cough. He writes, uh, thank you, John, for the shout out to the Overthinking It membership <laughs> by yours <laughs> in the link in the show notes of this episode or uh, at overthinkingit.com slash join. Uh, I, b- media that we want to stay healthy before it has to become a part of someone's outrage feedback loop. And B, it's well worth checking out the non-corporate social networks, Mastodon and the related overlapping systems, Scuttlebutt, Diaspora, and so forth, to see what the internet looks like without feudal landlords. I would a- add to what John C. says, that you could also read up a little bit on sort of the history of the internet, the early uh, World Wide Web, and even before the web, things like protocols like Gopher, which was a, a text transfer protocol before HTTP, which is the the kind of protocol language on which uh, web servers operate, and um, you know, uh, Usenet news groups, which were both a kind of a forum for a free exchange of ideas uh, and a, probably a, uh, probably, I don't know, I was involved in it and I didn't have this perspective at the time, but I'll bet they were um, exemplars of a lot of the social and political problems with uh, what became, what later became tech bro culture, but, uh, and, and, and were slightly forchanic in, in their discourse. Um, in the overthinking it sense of of that phrase, but like there there is history, and there have been these kind of waves of you know internet uh, libertarianism or kind of this this uh, this very cool DIY um, sort of thing on the internet. Uh, the well, the whole earth lecto- electronic link, uh, also a discussion board that. Um, seem to exemplify this for a long time or or like the early days of metafilter or or something like that and and people trying to uh people t- trying to to create that uh now have the problem that anyone trying to create a soft drink has uh because you can't make coca-cola and you can't displace coca-cola you you're just not gonna they they've got too much firepower to stop you even if you had an idea that's better than uh better than theirs so you can create these artisanal sodas that you know uh ha- are expensive and have a small audience but uh you know and and are less good <laughs> objectively <laughs> because coca-cola is like coca-cola is with like heinz ketchup one of the perfect tastes of the world uh but you know that's not what the internet is all right 546 um the I know we're I'm I'm kind of speed running through <laughs> through these comments. Uh, episode five forty six. Eating my old man Kit Kat, which was our Spider Man uh, into the Spider Verse. Um, three active structures back in the comments. I love that Miles doesn't have uh, doesn't have to have the overly tidy Spider Man two style heroes unmasking in order to get to a good place in his relationship with his father. Uh, you remember the hug at the end of the movie? That's what he's he's referring to here. Uh, or or uh, that's I shouldn't say he. I shouldn't uh, assume or possibly misgender three active destructure. Uh, the image avatar is a uh, dinosaur head. So uh, th- that's what uh, dinosaur 
Rhino is saying here. Um, Jefferson does not truly have to understand his son's identity in order to accept it. This feels, three-active structure continues, especially pertinent uh, as messaging in a world wherein an otherwise innocuous award show can generate headlines like, this black gay furry is now the LeBron James of gaming. So that's neat. Uh, hey, Pete, who's he talking about? Okay, so I took issue with this a little bit, only because he's talking about Sonic Fox, and Sonic Fox is sweet. <laughs> so a little bit of background. This is a, a legit person who won the Esports Athlete of the Year Award from ESPN or something, I think. Uh, and, of course, I'm not primarily focused on that because if you think about, well, if, if someone asks you, what did Sonic's Fox, Sonic Fox win, you say Evo. He won Evo a whole bunch of times. What is Evo? I'm glad you asked. So um, Evo is a fighting game tournament. It was originally a Street Fighter tournament, and it started in the mid-90s. And it has grown over the years to be this gigantic event with all sorts of different kinds of games that are played. And uh, unlike something like Overwatch or Counter-Strike or League of Legends or Dota, where the scenes for the sort of when you have like um, did any of those words make sense, Matt, by the way? Yeah, no, I'm following you in, in broad strokes. So keep going. Yeah. So so I think that the fighting game scene is really interesting and that Sonic Fox is a great representative of the of, of the fighting game scene and something of a legend in the fighting game scene specifically. So the deal with the fighting game scene. So when you think of the thing about esports is that uh, it's a method. It, the, originally, it's a method for selling. People conceive of it as a method of selling the game. The people who make the game consider would consider in having an esport as a as a marketing vehicle for selling the game that is like a uh, you know companies will put out prize pools for their game to try to get you to play their game but also there are esports that are either third party or bottom up uh, opportunities that other people take to try to organize players of the game and uh this kind of dichotomy was most uh, i think most sort of a uh, uh, it came to loggerheads the greatest with regards to StarCraft II, wherein StarCraft One had grown up to be this big tournament scene in Korea, and in StarCraft, and, and partly because it was organized by third parties, not by Blizzard, Activision, right, the made StarCraft. And so when StarCraft II came along, Blizzard put in a whole bunch of rules. You can't have LAN. You know, you got to be logged into the server. We have to provide you with the servers. Basically saying, like, you as a third party are not allowed to cut us out of the action. And as a result of doing this, and a bunch of other choices that they made to kind of like gate mods and, and that sort of assert control over their game. I think it really hurt their game's ability to pick yeah. up the momentum of the previous game. And even to the point that it's only, actually, I mean, yeah. this actually relates to the previous comment about an open versus a closed internet as a kind of platform for innovation. Exactly. And so like you can have stuff like overwatch, you know, where blizzard has is one shooter and people play that shooter. And then there's counter strike and that's a different shooter. People play that shooter. But when you're talking about games like, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken, right? Uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Super Smash Brothers. That's a little bit different. But, uh, you know, also, and notably, Dragon Ball Fighters, which I have and is awesome. And I would recommend that game because it's super fun. So is Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Um, but, but the fight, you can play one of these games and jump over and play all the other games. And if you were to go and visit a tournament where people were competing in one of these games and then were also competing in one of the other games, like you would watch both. <laughs> it's sort of like it's a similar sort of event and it's a similar yeah. sort of competence. So Sonic Fox, this goes back to Sonic Fox, the quote unquote what like uh, black gay furry who is the LeBron James of gaming. Um, 
one of the notable things about Sonic Fox is that he has one Evo four times on three different games, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, when you think about the, how how kind of narrow things get in in uh, athletics. Uh, in gen, sort of in games and sports. Not, so not, won, not, yeah. not since the days of Bo knowing. <laughs> exactly. He won it most notably. His most famous victory was in 2016 when he won Mortal Kombat X. Uh, but he won Mortal Kombat X twice. He or 10 rather. Uh, I just I like the X. And he won Dragon Ball Fighters this year. And he won Gods Among Us in 2014. But but Sonic Fox, if you really want to know one thing about Sonic Fox, other than the fact that so Sonic Fox wears one of those hats that's got animal ears on it and it has long, furry uh, kind of strips that hang down on either side of his head. That's his trademark. Is he sits there and he kind of hunches forward a little bit, and the sides of his like fox hat kind of dangle to the sides of his face. And he plays these fighting games and he plays them very well. And there is a legendary moment from Evo 2016 where the Mortal Kombat champion of Bahrain <laughs> makes it through the losers bracket into the final. And so this is a sort of loser bracket, winner bracket style tournament where um, the winner of the loser bracket faces the winner of the winner bracket and the loser bracket has to win twice if they want to win. Yeah, you know that kind of tournament structure? It's not very common in American sports, but it works for certain kinds of games pretty well where you don't really want one fluke to knock people out of it permanently, but also with like cuts to top eight and kind of matchup tiebreakers, it gets very complicated. The point being that like, this guy from Bahrain had to beat Sonic Fox in two different matches, not two different games, but two different matches in order to win the tournament, which seemed impossible. And he won the first match against all odds. And there's this very famous moment where in front of a like packed arena of people, you know, tens of thousands of people, Sonic Fox like gets up. He's very clearly like shaken. And he and he like and he tears off his fox hat. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like and he, and he like discards it and he sits down and then he beats the guy from Bahrain, who I think went by Tekken Master or something like that, and wins the championship in Evo. And it's like arguably it's among the it's certainly among the top five uh, fighting game esports moments of all time, I would say. Uh, and, and and for that much. Sonic Fox isn't the LeBron James of anything. Sonic Fox is the Sonic Fox of Evo. And uh, and in that respect, I, you know, shout out to Sonic Fox. Shout out to eSports. Shout out to Dragon Ball Fighters, And to all my folks out there playing Smash Brothers Ultimate. Uh, just remember, rolling doesn't work as well in this one as it did in Melee. I find that out the hard way on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm going to call it there that there are even more comments from that episode. But we will have them on a future uh, episode. We love the comments. We love uh, uh, mixing it up with you in the comment section so if you think anything about mary poppins or anything that we've talked about hop into the comments in the show notes on this episode just click through from your podcast app or go to overthinking it uh, the homepage on the website and click through to the show notes where you see episode 547 there and uh and leave a comment and we will uh potentially read it out on a future episode we're gonna leave it there thanks very much for listening thanks very much to pete for podcasting with me and thanks very much to our overthinking members who support us with a monthly contribution if you want to become one of them and uh, give us, you know, it's about a buck an episode is what it is about what it comes out to. Uh, click the link in the show notes or head over to overthinkingit.com slash join. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week for the last Overthinking It podcast of the year. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Oh, my God.